Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any of you to perish, but that all might come to repentance. Now these words from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, they remind us that the eyes of God, they see a broader and truer perspective than do the fallen hearts of mankind. Moreover, these graceful and merciful words, they remind us that despite our rebellious desires, God actually wants us to be saved from an end of eternal destruction. That despite all of the rebellious perversions of his fallen children, God actually wants us to be restored and returned to him and adopted into his family. And today, as we begin our study of the gospel according to St. Mark, I want us to focus on the charge of being fishers of men. This call to be radiant beacons of the gospel who illuminate the truth of God that our neighbors and enemies alike might be freed from the bondage of sin and worldly living. And to understand this call, today we're going to look at the ministry of Christ, in particular, his personal character, and see how we might live by his example. It's very common in our world for people to talk about good character, but very rare that people actually know what it is. And today there are two things I want us to study as we go to Mark 1. The first is, we have to look at Christ for who Christ actually is. And seeing his character, that he is one who comes to preach the fullness of, of time and the fact that the kingdom of God it is coming near. We, we see that when he comes, he casts out the evil. He also heals the sick. And our world has trained us to think that good character is just a mild temperament that is agreeable to all persons, but that's not actually the case with Christ. There is a broader and truer perspective, which doesn't tolerate evil, but shines the light that says, let us free people from the bondage. So that's one thing we're going to look at, the real character of Christ as exemplified there in Mark 1. The second thing we're going to look at is the fact that the gospel of Christ, it comes to free people from the bondage of worldly thinking and all the afflictions which come upon us, whether it be something diabolical, like the demons we see here in this text, or the afflictions which come to ensnare us with bodily ailments. Christ comes to liberate people from the things which the world ensnares us with. So with that, let's jump into our message. Thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dillon Proctor. We'll have a prayer and then get to our message. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to assemble together, Lord, over the internet. Ask now that you come, you be with each and every one of us. Open up our hearts and minds that we could receive your strength, wisdom, and courage. Let us rise up as courageous men and women who illuminate your gospel to the world around us. Let us have the strong conviction to go out and confront the world that it may reconcile with its own wickedness and turn towards God and have that liberty from all of the corruption and wickedness. Lord, we thank you for the great mercy you've given us. We ask all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So the world, it has trained us to think and see on worldly terms. This is just true across the board, and it's been happening all throughout time. And if the world can get you to think on worldly terms, to use its metrics for good character, to use its metrics for how you deal with problems, then you are secured for the ways of the world, the ways of death. But God actually desires we be liberated from this tyrannical way of thinking and that we can have eyes and ears that see and hear clearly. We can look there in Psalm 96, verses 5 and 6, and that psalm reads, For all the gods of all the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, and strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now this psalm, it sets up a contrast for us. It sets up a contrast that says, with God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, with him we find majesty and splendor, with him we find strength and beauty. 
But outside of him, we find all the gods, all the idols, all the systems of thought, which are ultimately ugly and, in fact, a little bit insane, and, and sometimes a lot insane. All of the worldly trappings, they are a little bit insane because they don't actually have God guiding our moral compass and guiding us through life, telling us what is good and what is evil. Anytime you step away from God and try to have something else step in the gap, there's going to be a little bit of insanity simply because none of our systems of thought, no other idols, no other false gods are actually capable of showing us truth. And in our modern day and age right now, we can see just how people are ensnared in worldly thinking. Trying to discern truth right now in any of our institutions is like trying to sort out melted chocolate that's been mixed with mud. Yet you know there's something sweet and delicious in there, but there's also something which is just utterly disgusting that you don't want to eat. And they've been mixed together in such a way that it is not possible to really discern what is what. And so what happens is we find ourselves in a moment where we, we as a people, we need a great awakening, we need a revival where we turn back towards God, and we take our lives and conform those to God's will, and in reflection of his character, we shine the light to the people around us that all may be liberated from this tyrannical nonsense of insane worldly thinking. And as fishes of men, that is the great call of us to develop our character where we are Christ-like but also freeing people from the bondage of idols and worldly thinking. And right now, we can look around our nation right now. Our world is enslaved by worldly thinking. And it wreaks destruction and breeds chaos wherever you go. And the call to be fishers of men is the call to liberate people from this insane perversion and have them saved into the joyous sanity which is found through Christ alone. And when we actually find ourselves back there with God, back there with the Master, we do find that despite our own rebellion, there is something more desirable than our own desires. There is something more beautiful than our own understanding of beauty. That is the life which Christ has set before us. And when we go back to that, we do find a joyous clarity where we can see the world better, where we can come to truth on a more personal term, where we can be liberated and find great joy that cannot be offered anywhere else in the world. And what we have to do as a people is recognize that when we set aside all worldly thinking and we look towards God, you might find yourself standing alone. You might find yourself at odds with what you hear on the television and what you hear across social media. And what we have to realize is that with God, God wants you to be freed. God wants you to be liberated from the wiles of sin, the bondages of affliction and captivity on all fronts of life. God did not create you in his image to be someone who has others think for you, to have others lead you around like a sheep to slaughter, but instead he himself came like a sheep led to slaughter so that you could be freed and you could have eternal life and you could have something purchased for you that you could not get on your own. Now, in our world, we can see here, particularly in America, that all of our institutions have had this muddling of melted chocolate and mud where there's really no easy way to figure out what's really going on. So that puts the responsibility on each of us as men and women to be righteous, to look for that revival, to look for that great awakening where we can assemble around the common good because our foundation is built on the eternal truth of Christ. And one of the things which is really interesting about this is this actually makes us more sane. You're not crazy if you think everything in the world is lying to you. Actually, starting with the premise that assume you're being lied to, starting with the premise that the world is actually corrupt is the sane way of navigating life. Scripture's been warning us since the fall 
that sin, it has come, and it rests with each man and woman created in the image of God. We are tainted by that, and the world is insane, and it is trying to corrupt you. But when we start recognizing that God wants something better for us, that there is liberty from that, and the world may despise you in your liberty, stand firm. The gospel of Christ, it comes to free us from the insanity of worldly thinking. And we must realize that outside of God is just an insane rebellion that keeps people in bondage. The world has led us to believe that good character is nothing more than an inoffensive and agreeable temperament. And it's done that so it can disarm you from actually liberating yourself and liberating your neighbor. It's caused us to, to go to war and be willing to fight for things which have very little to do with the truth of God, very little to do with the truth of our own lives, very little to do with our families and the neighbors and the people which are actually entrusted to us by God, and have a lot to do with people we've never met, things which are far off, and things which just bring more and more calamity the more and more we let them be idols. If we want to actually change the world and have an impact on the culture around us, it does not begin with things far away from you. It begins with the people in your life, raising them up, giving them strong courage, calling on those armies of heaven to come and stand with us as we go through the valley of the shadow of death, and illuminating God's truth and not fortifying ourselves with any idol that is outside of God's law. And as Psalm 96 tells us, all of those gods, all of those idols, they are indeed false. So we're going to start in Mark 1 today, and this is the first sermon that we have that will be studying the gospel according to St. Mark. And we won't be able to go through every theme in the gospel of Mark, of course, but I am going to read through each chapter word for word and let the gospel speak for itself because there's so much that we can learn in reading the gospel and walking through it. So now we're going to go to Mark chapter 1. We're going to read through it in entirety, and then we're going to come back and talk about the character of Christ and what it means to accept the charge of being fishers of men and the fact that we really actually may not have that much of a choice in it at all. There's only the way of life and the way of death. If you reject the way of life, you will find yourself on the way of death. So you do well to accept what God has gifted to us. All right, so let's go now to Mark 1, shall we? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist, he appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All the country of Judea was going out to him, all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to bend down and untie the straps of his sandals. For I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately, coming out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and like the Spirit, like a dove, descended on him. And a voice came from the heavens, saying, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit brought him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was there with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Now after John was taken into custody, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he was going along the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will have you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And after going down a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called to them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as one of the scribes. Just then, there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, come out of him. And after throwing him into convulsions, crying out with a loud voice, the unclean spirit came out of him. And they were all amazed. And they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Now immediately the news about him spread everywhere, all into the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately after they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and they immediately spoke to Jesus about her. He came to her, raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. And then she served them. Now when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing him all who were ill and all who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with their various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and prayed there for some time. Now Simon and his companions eagerly searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And Jesus said, Let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there, for that is why I came. And he went into their synagogues, preaching throughout Galilee, casting out the demons. And a man with leprosy came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling down, saying to him, Sir, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus reached out with him, and with his hand he touched him and said, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him, immediately and sent him away. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go now, show yourself to the priest, and offer your cleansing of what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the man went out and began to proclaim it freely, and spread the news around. And it spread to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So as we look here, this is the first chapter in the Gospel according to St. Mark. Now, what we find here 
is that between the gospel and the world is a great distinction. Jesus has come to pull people out of the ways of the world, out of the ways of worldly thinking, that they may be entering in to the kingdom of God. And in Mark 1, those who are called to be fishers of men, they watched Jesus do three principal things that they hadn't really seen others do. And yes, Jesus does a lot of things like reading there in the, the synagogues. He does prayers and things of that. But there are three principal things that I want us to focus on which the world had not really seen someone do. The first is Jesus taught with authority, not officiality. The second was Jesus cast out the demons. And even the demons knew who Jesus really was. And the third thing is Jesus heals the sick. And in his healings, there is a call to virtue. So those are the three things that I want us to focus on. He taught with authority, cast out the demons, and healed the sick. Now these three things, there are not ministries which permit moral cowardice. For all three of these things, they are despised and rejected by the world. And you can see throughout the Gospels, people try to discredit them. And even to this day, people will try to discredit these ministries. Teaching with authority. Those who traffic in officiality, those who like to spend the currency of credentials and expertise, they do not like it when the truth is exposed with authority as opposed to the notarized stamp of officiality. As far as the casting out of demons go, this is a very ugly scene to actually confront evil as being evil, not on technical terms or saying, well, this is this incident over here, it's explained by this phenomenon, to actually step in and say, this is evil on the premise of it being evil, and it needs to be cast out now. That is something that people do not actually like to see. You might think it'd be logical that people want to see demons cast out, or at least be satisfied by the novel you know, fanfare of it, but in truth, people hate it. It's ugly. It has convulsions, weeping, gnashing of teeth. People do not naturally like to see this. And throughout the Gospels, we have people that beg Jesus to leave because he cast out demons. We have people who accuse Jesus of being Beelzebub in league with Satan because he does this. It is something which people do not like. And the third thing, the healing of the sick. People come along with all their technicalities and say, well, it's wrong to heal the sick. And it's wrong to call people to that virtue like we see there. The mother-in-law there of Simon coming to serve Jesus after being healed. Or the man with leprosy after being healed, being sent there to fulfill and satisfy what is commanded of Moses in the law. Jesus always has this call to virtue after his healing. And the purpose of his healings is to bring restoration and draw people back to God. And to understand real charity, what it really means to bless people, it's not just the superficial characteristics. It is this call to virtue that says, get up, don't just survive, truly live. You're not just here to breathe oxygen from day to day. You're here to actually live, to have meaning in life, to have purpose in life, and to have upward aspirations where you achieve and do excellent things in all areas of life because you are made in the image of a holy and excellent God. Therefore, you go and you reflect that. Enough of the desolation, enough of the pitiful pits of despair. Rise up with the great goodness of God because the master of all creation has come to you that you may be liberated. And of course, the world does not like this. So, let's break these three things down, shall we? Teaching with authority is highly offensive to those who prefer officiality. And there's a great distinction to be made between officiality and authority. 
For authority, it is a step-in-the-gap alternative to real authority. Sincere, legitimate authority is something which is to be respected, and it comes with a distinguished power that cannot be tainted or maimed by the narratives or storytelling of the world. It is something which speaks in and of itself. It stands for itself. Its credentials are its own truth. And officiality, officiality is a much lesser affair. It can be bought and sold. It can be traded like a good or a currency, just a money to be exchanged among a select few here in the world. And for those who prefer officiality, they like to put up their barriers and walls around their official stamps and their official proceedings. They do not like it and are very enraged to see real authority speak, to see truth proclaimed outside of their preferred avenues. They do not like it at all. And Jesus, his message, it comes saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is near. Therefore, you must change the direction of your life away from the wiles of sin and into a believing life conformed to the good news of Christ. Now, right now in our world, as I said earlier, truth has become something which is essentially trying to discern it is, is like melted chocolate mixed with mud. Good luck trying to turn on the news and discern any truth. Just good luck with that. You're not, it, it's not possible anymore. God despises that. God looks there, and you can see in Psalm, or, or excuse me, Proverbs 20, 23, God hates differing weights. He hates the uneven scales where truth is not discernible, where dishonesty reigns supreme. The Lord despises that. It is an abomination to God. But yet, Christ come to liberate us from this. And what we find there is saying, you want to be freed from the muddling of the world, the endless riddles of chaos? Well, you're going to have to have a total change of direction now in your life. This idea of repentance, this idea of the, the metanoia, this is something which is a complete change. All your habits, all your lifestyles, all your behaviors, they must change in order that you may step into this way of life. Now, essential to Jesus' command is this total realignment of one's life. And you can't separate that from Jesus' message. Jesus doesn't just come to, to clothe the poor that they might have you know, a shirt on their shoulders in winter. He comes to remove them from the desolate state and the bondage of fallen creation. Putting on a, a cloak on, on the poor, that is merely the medium by which these things take place. When you get to the first principle of it, when you get to what's really going on, Jesus is bringing liberty to people because he does not want them to remain there. And it is painful to let the old self die and give up the pleasures of the world. But it's liberating beyond imagination to truly do so, to have this repentance, this changing of the ways. And this is the way. If people are to be liberated from the slavery of insane worldly thinking, then this is the only way. And just on that note for a moment, the thinking of the world is insane. In the modern world, we have decided we can have the effects of the gospel, the effects of Christian thinking and Christian logic without Christ as the cause. You cannot. You are not going to, to sow seeds of worldly thinking and expect to reap true Christian virtues. You're not going to. And this is one of the reasons why I say our vocabulary is very important. The, the way that we speak, it represents the way that we think. And if you want to have a you know, insight into how someone is thinking and what they really believe, you can pay attention to their vocabulary, the choice of words they have, and that actually tells you a lot about what's going on in their mind. And if we want to be people who sow the gospel and reap revival, 
to have a great awakening where people think clearly, where they're freed from the bondages and wiles of, of evil, then we're going to have to start speaking in a way that reflects Scripture, that illuminates Scripture, and brings the great revelations of Christ to the world around us. God will not be mocked. Do not be deceived. A man will reap what he sows, and we need to be sowing the goodness of the gospel. And start talking about real goodness again. Do away with your truth versus my truth, perspective, biases. We value one another as being children of God, nothing less, and we look for truth. And even if the whole world wants to rebel against the truth, that is fine. We've known all along that all people are sinners, that the world has fallen. That's okay. The church has stood alone outside the culture before while the rest of the world is insane. We can do that again. And in fact, in doing that is our best opportunity to bring restoration and the light to the culture around us. Not trying to appease the culture on its terms, not trying to be an influence within the culture, but trying to be a light for the gospel which pulls people upwards towards those magnificent gates of heaven. And to the point of insanity, this is something which I want to touch on for just a moment. You know, earlier I read from Psalm 96. And outside of God, all the false gods, all of the idols, all the worldly systems of thought, they are ultimately insane. You know, I've met a lot of people who claim to be atheistic or agnostic, but I've never met anyone who really is. Because if we're honest about how we operate as humans, as men and women, we're not the same thing as a rock. We're not even the same thing as a bird, a fish, or even a dog. And we need something motivating us in life. We need something to be admired as good and beautiful and something to be repulsed as ugly and evil. And whatever it is that tells us the admirable good and the hideous evil, that is our God. Now, sometimes people have multiple gods. Sometimes people have one big idol that they worship. Who knows? But the truth is, outside of, of God, there is nothing capable of actually telling us what is good and what is sinful, what is evil, what is ugly. And anytime we try to create an idol to step in the gap for God, and again, a lot of people think they're atheistic, they think they're agnostic, but they're really not. If they were truly atheistic or agnostic, they would sit out on a rock completely naked and be content waiting to die. But no one really wants to do that. So our minds, whether consciously or subconsciously, they create idols. They create a, a idolatrous love for the government that says the government now determines what is good or evil. Pop culture determines what is good or evil. Myself determines what is good or evil. We create all of our new methods. Rather than having biblical orthodoxy, we have the secular scoliodoxy, which is from hell, but it gives us a metric to say this is good, this is not. We view people based on their perspectives, their credentials, their life stories, and everything except for the fact that they're a child of God, a man or woman created in his image, and there's nothing more precious than it. And all of these ways of thinking of the world, they're a little bit insane. There's going to be some breakdowns in their logic. They're not ever going to really work. The government actually isn't capable of defining good and evil. Now, it might think it's the most powerful force on this earth to do that, but it's not really capable of it. And what we find here in Mark 1 is the clear sanity of loving God and returning back to the Master. And on that, let's go now to talk about casting out of the demons. 
Because the casting out of demons should not be discounted, even though it's very popular to do that. And the closer you get to a seminary, the more people are going to discount this. Jesus' character, and crucial to it, is the counting or the casting out of demons. And it's vital that we understand this. Jesus is actively taking a stand against the forces of hell. He's liberating people from evil that is consuming them. The demons, these demonic forces, they are more than just an unwelcome house guest. They have come. They are taking control of people. They are thinking for people. They are manipulating people to the point where they're now in such a wretched state that the child of God no longer has any control over their own will. And to cast out such evil, to liberate people from such tyranny, that is a ministry of the church. It's not pretty either. It's very repulsive, in fact. Exorcisms involve howlings, convulsions, foaming at the mouth, and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's no exercise in pacifism, and it makes you unpopular. The world does not like this ugly scene that it creates. And in fact, the world will often say, you are the villain for creating this ugly scene. If you would just leave everything alone, the demons, they would stay out there in the tombs, or perhaps they would come to church with us, and they would sit there in their pew quietly. Your bad character exposed them. No, it didn't. They were already there. They were just overlooked because we didn't have eyes to see them. It creates a very ugly scene to cast out the evil, and many people find it repulsive. And you have to wonder, how many people went to synagogue on the Sabbath with their neighbors enslaved to demons without even noticing it? Jesus does not see life with worldly eyes, but with the omnipotent, those all-powerful, those all-present, those all-knowing eyes of God, he sees the broader and truer perspective which we almost always miss. Everything we do is, in fact, a spiritual matter. And there are many things which prey upon our souls, demonic and otherwise. And the demons, they understand the truth of the situation, but sadly, many people are slow to take a stand against evil. We think, well, it can't really be evil. It's just an unfortunate set of bad luck. And thus, we allow evil to grow and wreak havoc. We say, oh, well, you know, that's just a, a, a small compromise we've made with the world. We're going to talk about this issue because the world wants us to. And before you know it, you are imitating the world and spending no time at all speaking about the truth of Christ Jesus. And you are only talking about the things, the things the world wants you to talk about. Jesus, he does not tolerate evil, whether in small or large affairs. Jesus cast it out and then he ministered to those who were held captive by it. And liberating people from wickedness, that is a fundamental aspect of Jesus' character. And beyond the mere casting out of malicious forces that keep people in bondage, we also see Jesus deal with the bodily sufferings that afflicted people's health. You see, God really does desire you to be restored in all areas of life. And his ministry is one of upward aspirations. And rather than coming to people, consoling them in a low place, saying, well, this is the best we can do here and now, you know, you've had this terrible thing come to you. I'm just going to come sit with you and stand in solidarity as I give you a hug. Jesus does none of that. He heals people and calls them to virtue. And you cannot forget the call to virtue that is inherent to all of Jesus' healings. Built into Jesus' healings is the fact that you can no longer remain in your desolate condition. We can look there in Mark 1, verse 31, there with Simon's mother-in-law. And what happens is Jesus came to her. And raised her up, taking her by the hand, the fever left her, and she served them. As soon as the fever left, she served Jesus. There's this real living that's going on there. There is a, a life that is happening. 
There again in Mark 1, verse 44, Jesus told the man cleansed of leprosy, Go, show yourself to the priests, offer yourself what Moses commanded, and as a testimony to them. Once the man was healed, he satisfied the law and testifies to his cleanliness. After being healed, there is this call to virtue that says, Go out, make good on the life that has been given to you. Truly live. You cannot stay. In all of Jesus' healings, there is the truth that one cannot remain in their desolate condition. Instead, they must rise up, cleansed, go out, truly living. And the gospel of Christ, it has upward aspirations. And if we want to be fishers of men who reap good things, then we must sow things which have those upward aspirations. We must call people to the higher virtues of God. The purpose of Jesus' coming wasn't just to come and sit with people who others did not want to sit with. His purpose was to liberate them, that they might enter into the kingdom of God and they actually become alive. To actually have eyes for what the gospel wants us to see is very difficult because the world has tried quickly to come and train us how to think and see on its terms first. It's trained us to fall into the insane traps of your truth versus my truth, your perspective versus my perspective, and our brains hold together all sorts of irreconcilable, incompatible ideas as if that is somehow meaningful. And we never value one another as being children of God. We never talk about real goodness. We never talk about real beauty. And we never have aspirations to be excellent and holy in all things. And we also never have a spine to stand against evil early on before it grows and metastasizes. So, we can look there at Christ's character in Mark 1 and see how God wants us to repent and be saved. Jesus' ministry was not one which was inoffensive to the world around him. All sinners find it inoffensive, or excuse me, all sinners find it offensive in one way or another to be told they need to repent. Hence, Jesus tells us there in Matthew eleven six, 6, Blessed is any person who does not take offense at me. But we in the world, we try to have the world standards of, of temperament, the world standards of character, and we think that it's good somehow to be non-confrontational, even though the gospel does not say this. Jesus is in confrontation with a lot of people over a lot of matters. He has confrontations with hell, confrontations with the teachers of the law, and ultimately confrontations even with Rome, and he is killed on a cross. The great confrontation between life itself and death is worked out and Christ reigns victorious. But we, if we have worldly thinking, we will take the verse there in Matthew 7, 1, which reads, Judge not, lest ye be judged. And we will reduce that verse down to a point where we keep to ourselves in an inoffensive, non-judgmental character, so we can thereby escape judgment by doing nothing which causes friction in the world around us. We think that if we never judge anyone else, then somehow we will be spared. But in truth, we need to have eyes that is not so much worried about what the world wants us to worry about and ask ourselves, are we actually freeing people from the bondage of worldly thinking and the slavery of sin? Because we have to actually call people to repent, to call out evil. If we never call anyone to repent because we don't want them to feel judged, then we will never fully honor the gospel or even that verse in Matthew 7.1. We will never do anything to free our neighbors from the bondage of sin and worldly thinking, nothing to truly heal the sick and cast out evil. We will just hand people a blanket, but then be content leaving them there and say, well, we'll come hand you another blanket next week. There's never the call to virtue, the call to transformation. 
never the command of Christ that says, love as I loved you, which does not permit or tolerate this residence in desolation. The full gospel of Christ, it is one that commands us to reflect Christ in bold action, and that forces the world to confront its rebellion against God. Then in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus goes out saying, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, cast out the demons. Freely you have received, freely you give. And you look there in Matthew 10, and it pretty well spells it out for us. And in fact, that's the second time in Matthew 10 that Jesus gives this commandment. Jesus spells it out for you. Not only have I done these things, preaching the kingdom of Kevin has come near. Not only have I healed the sick, not only have I cast out the demons, that is your charge as well. That is the charge of being fishers of men. And these ministries, preaching the kingdom of heaven, healing the sick, casting out evil, they are exemplified by Christ and certainly commanded of his followers. That is what good character actually looks like. That's what being a fisher of men actually looks like. That's what it actually looks like if you want to pull people from the insanity of worldly thinking. The world has trained us to think and act like it does. And sometimes when it fails, it says, well, you know, if I can't fully get you to reject God, maybe while you're there, even in your own house, in your own heart, I can get you to quench your desire to proclaim the gospel out of fear that you might judge someone else and thereby judge yourself. You know, all of these tricks, they are designed to negate, to nullify, to sedate us with the morphiate where we are kept in our own bondage and we do nothing to liberate our neighbors from theirs. We must rise up as righteous fishers of men who are bold enough to proclaim truth, merciful enough to heal, and courageous enough to cast out evil. This is the way. This is the good news. The gospel comes to liberate people from false gods and idols, from the ugliness and the insanity. Therefore, let us sow the good seeds of the gospel that revival might be reaped. And liberating people, liberating them from idols, that is critical to the character of Christ and critical to the character of true fishers of men. So, let us appreciate this fact. And on that, let us close by saying the Lord's Prayer. And then next week, I'll be throwing out the second sermon here in this series. But for now, let's close in prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. And you can email me at jeffdillonproctor at gmail.com, if I can say that without bumping the microphone. So reach out to me if you'd like to talk with me. God love you, and have a blessed day.